0: My name's Chris, it is great to be with you again, Um, if you don't know me, I am one of the pastors here. Most of my time is spent over um, at the 400, uh, at our other service location on Sundays, but it's always so good to be back here with you and to see so many familiar faces, Um, hopefully I get to catch up with you a little bit, Um, well at least the second service, I'll be back for that as well, so. So we are literally coming to the end of the book of James. We, this is, well, today will be the book of James, one more Sunday will be the book of James, and then we will be done. And personally, I'm going to miss Pastor James. And I think you guys share that sentiment. I thought it appropriate as we kind of round the corner toward the end of the book of James that we think about the end of James's life. I don't know if you're familiar with this, but James was a prominent figure in the church in Jerusalem. He was the pastor of the church in Jerusalem for 30 years right after Jesus ascended. uh, James, the brother of Jesus, became the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. He pastored it there for 30 years, but he was also the entire time very well respected among the unbelieving Jewish leaders in Jerusalem. So, so James was able to, because of his piety and incredible character, he was able to, to move freely in and out of the, the church and also the unbelieving Jewish leaders because of, his, because of his piety, because of his love for God's law. However, a day came where he was no longer able to freely flow between these two communities as people as the number of believers began to increase the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem began began to become more and more hostile to the church and they became more and more fearful of losing their place and losing their control and losing the 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 place of their religious system in the lives of Jewish people and so it came to a to a crescendo one passover and they were there at the temple and there were many believers there and there were many Jews there and there were many Jewish leaders there. And the Jewish leaders became, ins- they, be- they really started to freak out because so many people were talking about this Jesus and they were afraid, that, again, like I just said, they were afraid that so many people were being persuaded to be led astray concerning this Jesus. So they came to James and said, you're the most respected person here. Stand up and tell the crowd who this Jesus is, in their minds, they're thinking he's going to be able to explain to them why this Jesus is not the Messiah. The crowd hushes to hear what the most respected man in in Jerusalem will say about Jesus. The believers there, those who have heard the gospel, are thinking, will he affirm all that we have heard about Jesus being our promised Messiah? The leaders are there hoping that he will put an end to this incredibly populist movement and affirm their traditions. So James knows, he's literally pushed into the front on the pinnacle of the temple, surrounded by crowds. What is he going to do? He knows what's at stake. He knows what's gonna happen if he affirms Christ. He answered with a loud voice, why do you ask me concerning Jesus, the son of man? He sits in heaven, and I'm reading from Eusebius, the church historian. He sits in heaven at the right hand of the great power and is about to come upon the clouds of heaven. Eusebius writes, and when many were fully convinced and gloried in the testimony of James, they began to say, Hosanna to the son of David. Well, these same scribes and Pharisees again said to one another, we have done very badly in supplying such a testimony to Jesus. So let us go up now and throw him down in order that the people may be afraid to believe in him. So they went up and they threw down the just man and said, let us stone James the just. And they began to stone him for he was not killed by the fall but he turned and knelt down and said, I entreat you, Lord our Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And then one of them, who was a fuller, a a launderer, took the club with which he beat out clothes and struck James on the head. And thus he suffered martyrdom. And they buried him on the spot by the temple and his monument still remains. That is how James, our pastor James, who we have been listening to week in and week out over the last several months, that is how he died. What sustained James his whole life? And when it came down to this ultimate test and ultimate sacrifice, what sustained him? How was he able to, in the middle of all these crowds, knowing what would happen to him, profess Christ at the sacrifice of his life? Today, I think James is wanting us to hear and to know the secret of how he remained steadfast. And in in our passage today, if you want to open up the book of James, James chapter 5, we're going to start here in verse 7. Joe already did an amazing job of reading this, so I'm not going to read the whole passage. But if you look starting in verse 7, we see James here has three words that are going to show us the secret to persevering, to being sustained. He says, verse 7 says, Be patient. Therefore, brothers. So there's three words in this passage used for this idea of patience. Here's the first one, the word patient. This is patience, thinking like waiting, thinking the virtue of being still and waiting. Think of a farmer who is long-suffering, waiting for crops to come after he's planted the seed, waiting for the rains to come and make the crops happen. The next word that we need to pay attention to is verse 8, where it says, he says to us, establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. This word, establish, really means strengthen your hearts. Think like a soldier, someone who is standing firm, armed, standing ground. In verse 11, behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. Steadfast. And this is the idea of perseverance. This is the idea of like a marathon runner. This is, and this is why he wrote this passage to us and this is why he has written this book to us so that we may persevere. James is very concerned about the churches in the diaspora that he's writing to that they may be steadfast. In his mind, he's like, great, you have started well, but how will you finish? How will you finish? I was, you know, I, I, I need to make an obligatory reference to the Olympics, so I'll go ahead and do that, get this out of the way, right? So we know Usain Bolt, right? He was called the fastest man. He won the, yeah, Ray's like, yes, go Jamaica. Um, this guy is a beast. He's considered the fastest man in the world. He's 6'5", he's got massive muscles. But every single time on TV, no offense, Ray, but every single time on TV, what they, what they would say is this is the fastest man in the world. But I kept thinking in my back of my mind, well, But what if the race is longer than 200 meters? Is he really the fastest? What if the race is like the one that they ran last night, the 5,000 meters? You don't want Usain Bolt running your 5,000 meter race. You want the little tiny guy that's like 5'9", 130 pounds. He's the fastest man over 5,000 meters, 10,000 meters. See, we need to think, is the Christian life more like the 200 meters or like the 10,000? And when I was, you know, when I was young, I hated the idea that, oh, remember guys, the Christian life is not a sprint, it's a marathon. I'm like, that's so boring. Now being halfway through my life, if God graces me with 80 some years, you know what? It might be boring, but it's true. This life that we are on, this life that we're in, is much more like a marathon, much more like a 10,000 meter race. These are the blessed ones, James says, those that make it the whole way. Great you started, but how will you finish? Someone described following Christ, obedient, or discipleship, as long obedience in the same direction. And that's what James is after for us in mind. Have, he has this in mind for us. How will we keep going? And in particular, when we suffer. That is the whole point of his passage this morning. How are we going to continue when we suffer? Are we going to keep rejoicing? Are we going to keep growing? Are we going to keep obeying? Are we going to keep blessing others? Think about all the things that, that James has so wisely and helpfully instructed us in these past few months. Are we gonna keep believing? Are we gonna keep leading? Are we gonna keep fighting when we suffer? He's thinking about this for his own soul and for us. How does someone in the end be faithful even unto death? James' message for us this morning is don't Give up. Look at verse 12. It says, You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. The steadfastness of Job. Why does James reach back way into the Old Testament and bring out this idea of Job? James thinks that Job can teach us much how to persevere. In suffering, So if you've got your Bibles, you can keep your finger there in James. And then let's take a left and open up the book of Job. You can find Psalms. You can find that. It's the longest book of the Bible. Just take a little left. It's right before Psalms. James' audience was very familiar with the story of Job. We may be less familiar, so let me just remind us. Job was a faithful Man of God. And in one day, he lost all of his possessions. He lost seven sons and three daughters to a tornado that crushed their house. The next day, he lost his health. He was in chronic pain and had wounds all over his body. Listen to how he responds. Job chapter three. And after this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. Job said, let the day perish on which I was born and the night that said a man is conceived. Let that day be darkness. May God above not seek it nor light shine on it. Let gloom and deep darkness claim it. Let clouds dwell upon it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. Why did I not die at birth, come out of the womb and expire? For then I would have least lain down and been quiet. I would have slept and I would have been at rest. Why is light given to him who is in misery and life to the bitter in soul who long for death? For my sighing, verse 24, comes instead of my bread and my groanings are poured out like water. For the thing that I fear comes upon me and what I dread befalls me. I am not at ease, I am not quiet, I have no rest. Only trouble comes. Job has cursed the day of his birth. Then Eliphaz, the Temanite, answered, And said, If one ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? Yet who can keep from speaking? Behold, you, Job, have instructed many, and you have strengthened the weak hands. Your words have upheld him who is stumbling, and you have made firm the feeble knees. But now it has come to you, and you are impatient. It touches you and you are dismayed. Is not your fear of God your confidence and the integrity of your ways your hope? Verse 7 here's the point of his whole speech. Remember who that was innocent, who that was innocent ever perished? Or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen those who plow iniquity, sow trouble, and reap the same. For the next 38 chapters in the book of Job, poetically, Job exposes the anguish and deep darkness of his soul. Now, Before we go on, I just want to say that I shudder at the idea of talking about suffering in front of you all. As many of you know, we have buried children this year. Moms have lost children still unborn. Some of you in this room, I know, are watching parents right now die so painfully and slowly. So, so much so that every day is like a death to you. I know some of you live with chronic pain, with no hope of a cure. Some of us have degenerative diseases. And I know some of you have older children that right now are breaking your hearts every day. I understand if you would say my strength is gone and the wind is completely out of my sails. So I shudder to talk about this with you, but I hope that you will listen to Job's words because personally I must confess I have not suffered like Job and I have not suffered yet like you, like many of you. But Please listen to Job and be comforted today. We're going to talk about Job's darkness, his unhelpful friends, and God's purpose. Job's darkness, his unhelpful friends, and God's purpose. Job, throughout his discourse, cries out, Why? Why is this happening to me? And it would be very helpful to us to think about what is beneath this question, Why? And Christopher Ash, the. Commentator helps us very much. He says, the deepest question that Job faces, is God for me or against me? This is the question beneath the why question in the book of Job and through the history of believers in pain. If you look at Job thirty twenty, he says, God, I cry to you and you do not answer me. I stand and you only look at me. He's disoriented, he's disillusioned. And on top of the pain of his loss, which is devastating enough, now God himself is indifferent to him. He thinks, Job feels God himself has withdrawn his nearness This is not just Job's experience. James knew that his audience and he knew that you and I would feel the same when we suffer. Young person, you will feel abandoned when you suffer severely. You will feel abandoned. You know, C.S. Lewis experienced this. You know, he famously quote, he famously wrote this, that God whispers to us in our pleasure, speaks to us in our conscience, but shouts at us in our pain. Pain, he says, is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. You familiar with that quote? However, years later, after C.S. Lewis lost his dear wife to cancer, he would have a different take on what happens in pain. Where is God? He wrote this in A Grief Observed. This is one of the most disquieting symptoms. When you are happy, so happy that you have no sense of needing him, so happy that you are tempted to feel that his claims upon you are an interruption, If you remember yourself and turn to him with gratitude and praise, you will be, so as it feels, welcomed with open arms. But go to God when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain, and what do you find? A door slammed in your face, and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside, and after that silence you may as well turn away the longer you wait the more emphatic the silence will become there are no lights in the windows it might be an empty house you will then wonder was it ever inhabited it seems so at once and that seeming was so was just as strong as this what can this mean why is he so present a commander in our time of prosperity And so, very absent a help in time of of trouble. Why is James recalling this story of Job? He knows that one day this will be your experience and we will want to give up. He's saying to us that we need our best theology in our darkest moments, we need the theology of Job in these moments. You know, another source of anguish was Job's friends. Just when you thought it couldn't get any worse, enter in Job's friends. Job is perplexed as to why he is suffering. His friends are perplexed as to why Job is perplexed, perplexed, because they think it's obvious. I just read in verse eight, Eliphaz says, as I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow in trouble reap the same. This is a summary of all of Job's friends' advice. It's a simple case of cause and effect. In their minds, we suffer because of our sin. Job is suffering, therefore Job has sinned. They thought they knew exactly what the problem was and they rolled up their sleeves and got to work. Before we get into what was wrong with that, let's just say that they were not wrong. There are consequences for sin. Now, they are not wrong. But as my friend Dan taught me years ago and continues to remind me of, they were not wrong, but they were woefully incomplete. Incomplete. The only problem was that they only knew this one truth and because they, could, they only knew this one truth, they could only come up with one conclusion, bad things do not happen to good people. And because of their narrow-minded cause and effect only theology, they misdiagnosed the cause of Joe's suffering and they misapply God's word. And for this, at the end of this whole story, God goes to them and says, my anger burns against you for you have not spoken what is Right? Now, why are Job's friends wrong about the cause of Job's suffering? It's because there is a lot more going on here than they or Job understand. We know in Job 1, chapters 1 and 2, that Job is suffering not because of his sin. He's not suffering because of his sin. Actually, it's the opposite. He is suffering because he is blameless. Satan had claimed that God, that Job served God only because God had blessed him. Satan had claimed that Job is only faithful to you because of the prosperity that you've given him. So he was not suffering for a sin. He was innocent, despite what his friends would say. And I, I just have to take a moment to talk about Job's friends because their words did not help, and instead they did not relieve Job's suffering, they actually added to his suffering. And I want to caution us here. As awful as that seems, we are tempted to think and to do the same. We can consciously or subconsciously think there must be some secret sin for which we Being punished. There must be some secret sin for which my friend is being punished. And we, with our quick fixes, we say, read more, we say, pray more, we say, confess more. Mistakenly, we can add insult to injury. Now, first of all, I want to say I am so blown away all the time by how well we as a church, and we as communities, and we as friends comfort one another. I am constantly hearing amazing stories of how well and how good and how direct and how involved we are in each other's sufferings. And I want to commend us for that. But I want to see what we can learn from Job's friends. One, if you think you know exactly what to say to someone that is suffering, don't say it. These guys had no humility and no brokenness. If we walk into a situation thinking we have the answer, you don't have the answer. So then how do we respond? Romans 12, just listen. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another Don't be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Identify with the suffering. Never be wise in your own counsel, in your own sight. We must feel to the best of our ability what they feel. And then the the best advice that I have read so far on then what to do, and how to respond in our suffering when we're asking why from Francis Anderson. Let me just read this for us. Men seek an explanation of suffering in cause and effect. They look backwards, or from your direction, they look backwards for a connection between prior sin and present suffering. However, the Bible looks forward In hope, and seeks not an explanation so much in origins, but in goals. The purpose of suffering is seen not in its cause, but in its result. The purpose of suffering is not seen in its cause. In its result, Job wants to know why. And Job's friends point to origins, but this is futile because there's no specific sin that is the cause of his suffering. There's no specific sin that is the cause of your suffering. Much suffering is a mystery. God has his secrets, he has an inescapable purpose in all he does, even if the purpose is not revealed to the creatures it affects. There is innocent suffering with no apparent cause. We must look at God's goals and not the results. What was God's goal for Job? What was he after? We see that in the end of the book of Job, that God's comfort to Job comes not from Job knowing the cause, but from the revelation of God himself. This is what transforms Job. This is what it's all about. And after Job's friends speak, and after Job speaks in the book of Job, it is God's turn. After 38 chapters of Job's questions and complaints, we then have the longest discourse from God in the Bible. Four chapters, God finally responds to Job, but maybe not the way you would expect. If you look at Job chapter 38, it then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, who is this that darkens my counsel without knowledge? Later he would say, shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? See, Job did not suffer because of his sin. But in his suffering, Job did sin. He was not patient but we will see he was steadfast. And personally, while I don't know anything about the suffering that Job experienced, I don't know anything about the extent of that suffering, the pain he felt, I do know his sin. I do find fault with God, and I find fault with God for the plan for my life. I complain about God. I complain to God. And James brings this up for us so Well, if you look back in James chapter five, verse nine, it says, do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may be judged. See, what is happening here? Why is James so concerned about us grumbling against one another? I thought this had to do with complaining against God, with giving up on God. What James is telling us is that When we begin to find fault with God and start to give up on Him, we know we're doing that because we start to give up on others. When someone comes to us or someone starts speaking to us, do you ever say the words or even with your thoughts just sigh when you think of someone? Like, oh, bother, not this again. Not that again, not this situation again. What are we doing? We are not so much finding fault with our brother or our sister, we are finding fault with God and his plan for them and his plan for us and that's why James says this is so serious. So how does God respond to Job? Does he ridicule and shame him? Does he lean over the judge's bench and just like, who do you think you are, Job? Parents of high schoolers, middle schoolers, take careful note. He doesn't do that. He doesn't say who do you think you are. He asked Job to go for a walk. And he asked him some questions. Job didn't need a lecture. What he needed was to see how big God was and how small, respectively, he was. And to do that, he invites Job on a tour of creation. If you read the book, Where Were You When I Laid the Foundations of the Earth? Job, who determined its measurements? Now, God goes on to ask Job about the sea and the stars and the cloud, the clouds, the sunshine, the rain, the snow, the hail. So beautifully, so poetically, he paints for Job a picture of his majesty and wisdom. And then, bizarrely, he takes Job to the zoo. Look at the lion, the goat, the wild donkey, and the ostrich. Really? The ostrich. What on earth does the ostrich, what can the ostrich do for this man that is suffering so much? If I was Job, I'd be thinking I am covered with boils. I have lost everything, I have lost my family. I'm surrounded by the three stooges of counseling and all you have for me is an ostrich? Have I considered the ostrich? (laughs) Not recently. God in his wisdom is saying, behold, Job, all that I have created, and behold, all that I sustain every day, without your wisdom and without your help. These wonderful and mysterious works should cause you, Job, to be amazed. Amazed at my knowledge, God says, amazed at also your ignorance of these things. How, my dear child, can you find fault with me? You would think and you would hope that at this point God would now tell Job about the great plan that he had, give him the secret knowledge that would make sense of all of his suffering. He doesn't. As James says, God has done this in mercy and compassion now. He doesn't reveal to Job why. He simply reveals himself. God has given Job something much more satisfying, much more sustaining, much more strengthening. He has overwhelmed God or Job's why questions with a who question. The revelation of God himself. One commentator writes the book of Job is not about getting answers to our suffering. This is a book about God. It is about true worship it is about bowing down in our reality and in our darkness to the one who is God the greatness of God is more than sufficient to calm Job's broken heart and noisy soul do we not also need this grace to bow down to the God who is God in our suffering So, in the end, what does happen to Job? He doesn't get his questions answered. He doesn't at the end go, I get it. I understand it all. No. When he sees God, he realizes that he did not and cannot understand God's great and good purposes for all he does. Does Job get his felt needs met? Does he get healed at this moment? No, the beauty of it is that Job no longer cares about any of those things. He does not want anything but God. This is what God offers, and this is what God takes. This we see from the book of Job, and this is enough to heal, sorry, to heat, rather, the coals of his heart on the coldest and darkest night of his soul. Job 42, verse two, Job says, I now know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. I have uttered what I do not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. And this, and this, what he says next, has so struck me and has so much for us right now. It has so much for us that are suffering and hurting and crying and feel the darkness. We feel abandoned. We feel the pain of loss. Job says, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear. But now, my eyes see you. God was not content to leave his son Job just hearing his voice. Just reading his words. Just learning information about him. He wanted Job to see him. And it was enough how about us how about you do we trust that God is enough for us are we still frantically looking for answers are we still frantically looking for solutions are we just waiting for the day that suffering stops Or can we trust and can we persevere to keep believing, to keep knowing, to know that God is enough for us in the darkest hour? Where we look in our suffering makes all the difference. We cannot look at ourselves. We cannot look for a cause. Where will we look? D.A. Carson, commenting on Job, says this. He says, Christians have something to hold on to more than Job ever knew. We know Christ crucified. Christians have learned that when there seems to be no other evidence of God's love, they cannot escape the cross. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? When we suffer, there will sometimes be mystery. Will there also be faith? Yes. If our attention is focused more on the cross and on the God of the cross than on the suffering itself. So we can go to him. We can look to him. And as we take communion today as a family, we can respond to him from what we've heard. As you come forward to take the bread and the juice today that represent Jesus' body broken and Jesus' blood poured out, we can take our questions, we can take our complaints, we can take our grumbling. We can take our frustrations with God and our anger with God and all of our frustrations with other people and how we verbalize that and we can lay that right at Jesus' feet. This juice represents his blood shed for us. body represents his broken, sorry, the bread will then represent Jesus' body. All of this, instead of suffering, the consequences of our sins, we see that Jesus, the innocent one, the really innocent one, has suffered for them all. So if you are prepared for that by what you've heard today, then I invite you to come forward. Come to Jesus. If you're still working on this, I invite you to respond by asking God to reveal himself to you just like he revealed himself to Job that in the middle of your pain and whatever you're suffering, that God might show himself large and show yourself small. And that will be a blessing indeed. So when you're ready,